0: Luke chapter 18. Lord, I thank you that I am not like my neighbor who just got fired for stealing from his workplace. I thank you that I'm not like the woman that I saw strung out outside the department store. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like the mob of kids I saw on the news ransacking the convenience store. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that sexual pervert whose name just got published in the newspaper. Lord, I thank you that I'm not so proud of my sin that I flaunt it with parades and flags. Lord, I thank you that I live according to Christian morality. I attend church twice a week, I raise my kids right, I read my Bible and I pray every day. That's the prayer of a hypocrite. That's the prayer of a self-righteous hypocrite who thinks that he or she is at the front of the line of the kingdom of God, but in who reality, in reality, will have no part in it at all. That's the prayer of a hypocrite. I say, well, that's a little harsh, isn't it? Because, I mean, I kind of was identifying with that prayer until you said it belonged to a hypocrite. In Luke chapter 18, we find a very similar prayer. In the book of Luke, we see Christ's call to discipleship over and over again. We see Christ's condemnation of hypocrisy over and over again. We see much teaching about how we ought to live in light of Christ's second coming over and over again we also see another theme repeated throughout the book of Luke and uh, the gospel of Luke. And that's the idea of kind of the motif of reversal, of reversal. That is, God so confronts or confounds human wisdom and expectation that those who view themselves as righteous in the end may find themselves on the wrong side of the kingdom of heaven. We also see that those whom others view as those who must be a shoe in to the kingdom actually are those who end up cast out. And so throughout Luke's gospel, we see that those who think they're first end up last and those who may assume they are saved are actually lost. And so we see also God's grace and God's mercy on those who often are rejected by society and those who are elevated by society being rejected by God. And so uh, we see Christ being announced to shepherds. We see Jesus calling tax collectors to follow him. We see the good news of eternal life uh, pronounced and offered to prostitutes and drunks and those whom the scripture collectively just refers to as Sinners. Mark 2.15 says that as Jesus reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Notice it, not just following from a distance, not following from a distance saying, oh, I wish we could be part of that crowd. It actually says they are reclining with Jesus and his disciples. It's remarkable, the remarkable thing about that. Again, is is not simply the sinners and the tax collectors and the, those whom society would reject who followed Jesus from a distance, but these are those who actually came to Jesus and believed and were saved. As if this were not astonishing enough, we, what we also find repeated in the Gospel of Luke is, again, those who were perceived to be of the religious class, the moral, the righteous, are often rebuked by Jesus often called to repent of their self-righteousness and, and even told that they're going to be excluded from the kingdom of God. And so Jesus at one point says, people are going to come from east and west and they're going to recline with Abraham in the kingdom, but the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast out. Matthew twenty one thirty one. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know if that's embarrassing to you. I don't know if that's encouraging to you. But when I read that, I think, what a joy to proclaim that sort of gospel. How do we respond to this? What should uh, the shocking reality do for us? Well, first, it should cause us to rejoice. Why? Sinners, tax collectors follow Jesus. Well, there's news for us. We are all sinners, right? So we ought to rejoice that this is the gospel, this is the Savior who has come, the one who welcomes sinners. Those who thought they had no hope of salvation found that they are the very ones whom Jesus Christ came to save. If you're here this morning and you're carrying a load of shame on your shoulders or guilt on your shoulders and feel that you're unworthy, you are right. Follow up and saying Jesus came to die for you. We should rejoice that sinners can be saved. We should weep. We should throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and avail ourselves to such a salvation. And you say, well, that would be beneath me. That's the state of mind. That's the heart condition of everyone. Ought to be the heart condition of everyone who comes to Jesus for salvation. What else does this reality do that Jesus welcomed sinners that he often rebuked the self-righteous. What should it do for us? Well, it should just give some warnings. Often those who think they are righteous are not. Often those who believe they are guaranteed entrance into heaven will be shut out. Often those who think they have favor with God actually are going to receive his wrath. Sometimes those who believe they are wheat are actually weeds. Sometimes those who think they are sheep are actually goats. Sometimes those who think they are saved are actually lost. Often those who think they'll be okay when they stand before Christ will actually suffer his rejection. He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So how do we know? Well, the question is this. Are you relying upon your own righteousness in order to have relationship with God? Are you relying upon your own righteousness as the entrance into his kingdom? Well, what Luke does in this gospel is he shows us the lowly, the rejected, the sinners, And he celebrates the mercy of God towards such people and helps us understand that we are such people. At the same time, he makes it very clear that there's a body of people who are self-righteous, trusting their own goodness, who will ultimately be rejected by the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving a very rude awakening at the judgment. Now, that's not to say that all out-and-out sinners come to Jesus, and it's not to say that all those uh, who have a religious background uh, or or religious scruples are going to be rejected by Jesus. It's simply to say self-righteousness doesn't cut it. Throughout Luke's gospel, we see example after example of men and women who we would expect to see rejected by Christ, who are welcomed in. We see example after example of those who we expect would reject Jesus, who actually run to him for salvation. There is a great equalizer among men. No matter the background, no matter the social status, no matter the religious zeal or sinful lifestyle, the great equalizer is this. Any man, any woman can come to Jesus to receive salvation if they come with genuine faith and repentance. This morning, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, that's it. Believe. Believe believe that he is Savior. Believe that he is Lord. Confess your sin, you're unworthy of salvation, but you are in need of salvation, and Jesus Christ has extended that mercy to you, so come to Jesus and be saved. That's a free invitation. It's this sincere repentance and faith that actually determines one's relationship with God. I think what we can see this morning through The prayer recorded by Jesus in Luke 18 in a parable in verse 9 through 14, number one, it could be encouraging to us that salvation is extended to sinners. It could also be a warning to us that we all can veer towards legalism and pharisaism and self-righteousness. And so let's read it. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus tells a parable, and there's no mystery as to what this parable is about. Sometimes Jesus' parables, is kind of, you know, what's he trying to communicate? Here he tells us, right in verse 9, he says, he also told this parable to some who, what? Trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Do you know anybody like that? Have you been somebody like that? Are you somebody like that? This is a parable for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Looked at others as if they're beneath them, uh, unworthy of regard. And so here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. And here's the contrast. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's Jesus' commentary on this. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so first, let's meet the Pharisee. The Pharisee, largest, strictest Jewish sect. The the term Pharisee most likely is derived from a term simply meaning separate. The Pharisees had a very ostentatious way of trying to keep themselves separate from everything that had any connotation of sin or ceremonial defilement. I mean, the classic understanding is that they believed that you had the law and then you ought to put a fence around the law and then put a fence around the fence that's around the law. And so they had uh, incredibly strict standards which were designed to keep them from violating uh, any law. In reality, however, we know that they became legalistic hypocrites and they became sinners, frankly, in their religion. They were obsessed with external shows of piety and ultimately showmanship so that all that they did, they did to impress one another. And so this was the religious climate of Judaism of, in Jesus' day. The, the teaching of the Pharisees epitomized uh, the religious establishment of first century Israel. The Pharisees' influence within uh, the average uh, Jewish, Jewish man's daily life was tremendous. Their rules for Sabbath regulations and washings and dietary restrictions. All of this dominated daily life. Not not all those who saw a Pharisee assumed the Pharisee was a hypocrite, understand. In society in this day, the Pharisees were were looked at those, frankly, who were the religious elites. They were the ones who were going to enter into the kingdom without any question about it. And that's why Jesus' teaching was so controversial. Because he called these men on the carpet for their religious hypocrisy. Not surprising, then, to find this Pharisee in the temple. Prescribed times to pray, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., but you can go whenever you wanted. And this, Remember, this is a parable, and so Jesus sets it in the temple. The Pharisees there praying. And again, no need to, to question what the purpose of the parable is. Jesus is rebuking those who are trusting in their own self-righteousness. So what we have here is kind of a profile of a self-righteous religious man. Claims to believe in God, follow his law, and, and therefore deserves entrance into the kingdom of God. And I don't think it'll be giving away the ending to say he doesn't make it. This man, this Pharisee, is not saved. He's not accepted. He is absolutely and eternally rejected by God, the God that he claims to obey. It's of the utmost importance, then, as we look at this parable that we who believe we are saved look at this man's negative example and even examine ourselves. And so we're going to look at this parable under three headings this morning. We're going to look at three damning assumptions, three damning assumptions of the self-righteous man. First of all, we see in this Pharisee that he believes that God accepts us on the basis of our inherent goodness. He believed that God accepts us on the basis of our inherent goodness. It says in verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He begins listing his credentials. Lord, I know that I'm right with you. I know that I'm a child of the kingdom because look what I do. I fast. I give. And really what he's doing is he's signaling that he believes eternal life can be earned through his own inherent goodness. Fasting, he's going out with food, he's denying himself, uh Food twice a week is saying to focus on spiritual things was, was the intention. This was not prescribed in the law. There's only one national fast in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. That was it. So this is extreme overkill here to be fasting twice a week, but that was the religious climate of the day. And so he looked at this as his religious bona fides. Here I am fasting twice a week, and I give tithes of everything that I get, 10% of all that I have. This to him was the evidence that he is much better than... Uh, those he lists, the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's listing these things as if he's writing a resume of, for acceptance into heaven. And so here's the question this morning. Are you writing a resume? And what is on your resume? I believe that I am a child of God, and I believe I deserve entrance into the kingdom of heaven because fill in the blank. What is in that blank or blanks? What would that list look like for most of us this morning? I hope for most of us this morning, the answer is easy. What grants me entrance into heaven? The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ in his merit alone. Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin, bore God's wrath against me. Not only that, but Jesus Christ lived a perfectly righteous life. He fulfilled the law. God then applied not only my sin to Jesus, but Jesus' righteousness to me so that I can stand before God and God sees the righteousness of Christ. My entrance into heaven is guaranteed not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is. Not because of my righteousness, but because of the righteousness of the Son of God. That's the only right answer. And so our list only has one blank, and in the blank it says Jesus. The tax collector, I'm sorry, the, the Pharisee, however is making a list of what? Externals, his own goodness. He's listing these things again like it's a resume for entrance into heaven. The reality is all of us who are saved are saved by the mercy of God. Titus chapter 3, remember this passage from some months ago. For we ourselves are once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And so Paul in the epistles is very, very clear, very out in the open, very direct, destroying any notion that any of us can appeal uh, appeal to any inherent goodness, because the reality is what were we? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. How's that for a resume? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. You can't get more clear than that. And I know that this is a Sunday morning gathering and the vast majority of you are believers. I get that. But I can't help but feel or believe that there's somebody here who's not yet a Christian or maybe a self-deceived thinking that you're a believer, when in reality you've never really been exposed to the biblical standard of salvation. You've never quite understood what it actually is to be saved. This is a wonderful passage. It's a gift of God here in Titus chapter 3 because it makes it so abundantly clear. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As I say, there's no resume that's going to get you into heaven, there's no list of inherent goodness that's going to prove that you earn a right to access to the kingdom of God. It's only through Christ, and it's only by the mercy of God. The Pharisee does not understand this. He doesn't see it, and he is relying entirely upon himself. Romans 3.10 says, None are righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, in this very chapter, Jasmine, Jesus speaks to a young man. And he says to Jesus that Jesus is good, Jasmine. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? You know what he says next, Jasmine? No one is good but God. Good job. Perfect. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And in that, Jesus uh, approaches another man. Determine that he is is righteous and that he is going to make it. You're not good. No one is good but God. God then has designed salvation to be entirely a matter not of works but of faith. Not of human effort but of belief. Not of reward but of mercy. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin, Galatians tells us, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so that's the question this morning, have you believed? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior and Lord? Is it His goodness and His goodness alone that you're trusting in to receive an entrance into the kingdom of heaven? Salvation is not a matter of reward for human goodness, but rather mercy upon human sinfulness. Romans 11.32 says, For God has consigned all to disobedience that He might have mercy on all. Why mercy? Because mercy is exactly what we need. We don't need reward. You don't want reward. You don't want justice. You want mercy. We don't need justice because justice will result in judgment. We need mercy. Why? Because prior to Christ, we are all spiritually dead and unable to save ourselves. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those that are in the flesh cannot please God. Some of you this morning might read that verse and realize that you've been spending many years kind of like a hamster on a wheel, just running and running and running and running and getting nowhere. Because it says explicitly, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't do it in and of yourself. So that's where we are when we enter this world, in the flesh. Unable to please God, that's our natural state. That's the sad predicament we find ourselves in, and that's why we say we need the mercy of God. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in trespasses and sins, speaking to believers. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, past tense, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you have not trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord. Frankly, the Bible describes your present state as being a child of wrath. And don't be offended because that's the reality of everyone born into this world. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in what? Mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, and it goes on to speak of the salvation we have in Christ. God accepts us on the basis, not of our inherent goodness, but only on the goodness of Christ. This man assumed, this Pharisee in the temple, that God accepts on the basis of inherent goodness, and of course, he went... And this is true of everybody who believes that God accepts us on the basis of goodness. Number one, you believe God bases salvation on human goodness, And the next logical assumption is what? I'm good enough, right? He assumed that he was good, obviously. And so if you're here this morning relying upon your own perceived goodness, assuming that you are right with God because of your own good character or good works, this is a warning to us. Self-righteousness does not cut it. If you'll be saved, it's only through our renunciation of our own goodness and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this man, we said under this heading, three damning assumptions of the self-righteous man. Number one, that God accepts us on the basis of inherent goodness. Number two, the next assumption is that goodness is determined by externals. Notice that this man, in writing his resume for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, uh, mentions tithing and mentions fasting, but doesn't say anything about his heart, right? He didn't even say, well, you know what? Uh, I try to show mercy to people. I try to be loving to others. He doesn't mention any heart issues whatsoever, but it's all the basis of behavior or externals, what he did or didn't do. This doesn't say anything of the heart. It's easy to go through the motions and do religious activity with no genuine heart behind it. We know that's true because all of us have been and can be and sometimes currently are guilty of that very thing. Even this Pharisee being steeped in the law should have understood that religious activity without heart behind it is always rejected by God and always has been rejected by God. That's not a New Testament reality. Remember in Isaiah chapter one, as the prophet Isaiah, uh, God is rebuking Judah and the, for the rebellion through the prophet Isaiah, and he goes on to speak of the fact that they are going through the religious motions. They're bringing multitudes of sacrifices, and God through Isaiah simply says, "I've had enough of all this. I don't want the sacrifices. I don't want the festivals. I don't want who, who's required this of you?" He says in Isaiah 1.12. You think you're doing religious service? I think you're just trampling my courts. Just don't bring offerings. Don't bring incense. It's an abomination. I don't, I don't want to see your convocations. I, I, I cannot endure this anymore, your new moons, your feasts, and so on. He says, I hate it. It's a burden to me. And then we become like the Pharisee, judging the Jews of the Old Testament. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like those rebellious Jews in the Old Testament. <laughs> we can veer towards Phariseeism, can't we? We can veer towards legalism, can't we? We can go through the religious motions, can't we? We can bring our bodies here and leave our hearts at home. Isaiah makes it very clear that these rebellious Jews were going through religious motions, but the response, or I'm sorry, the right to, to rectify this in Isaiah 1.16 The Lord says wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, and then what? Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Have a heart of compassion, mercy, justice, and genuine worship. Then come talk to me. Now, we know the whole context as Christians, we understand that what was actually needed for the Jews, uh, because that standard was very high, and it's a standard that no man could meet without a regenerate heart, so we know ultimately God would promise the new covenant, so that his people could have a brand new heart, so that overflowing from inside of them would be mercy, and justice, and compassion, and genuine worship. Matthew and Jesus said in Matthew 23, 25, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' For what? You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. That's just the definition of hypocrisy, right? Looking okay on the outside, not okay on the inside. Now, one of the things that we ought to be very zealous and jealous about as a church, Calvary Baptist Church, is to protect ourselves from ever developing this type of culture in our church. Setting up standards... And then all of us coming and putting on the external show as if we're meeting those standards, when in reality, we're struggling spiritually. Our heart's not in it. I'm not doing okay spiritually, but when I get together, I understand what face I need to put on, right? How you doing? I'm doing okay. Oh, that's just, yeah. How's the weather? Yeah. Meanwhile, you've lost your affection for Christ. You don't have much of a desire to be around Fellow believers, you come to worship and you're just going through the motions. You're not doing okay, but you dare not mention it because you understand in this group, we all need to uh, appear uh, to be right all the time. Listen, that's not the purpose of church, right? My son's car is doing really, really poorly. Like, Like he has a friend that he works with that has a car and he's got like one of those, puts all that money into the car so that it has that really loud muffler right? You know. And why is it the ones with the loudest cars are also the worst drivers? I don't know. But my son didn't have to put any money into his car, and it sounds just like that. And so what should he do? Well, he can't go to the mechanic because that'd be really embarrassing to bring a broken car to the mechanic, right? I mean, that would just be humiliating to bring a broken car to the mechanic. So uh, what's he going to do? Just keep driving it. You get the point? What is the purpose of this community? Not showmanship, not externals, right? You're struggling spiritually, you come here. You reach out for a fellow brother in Christ. You reach out for a sister in Christ. Say, pray with me. This is my struggle. When somebody asks you how you're doing, tell them how you're doing. And then if they don't like the honesty, they'll just stop asking you, right? And that's okay. If they just want to talk about the weather or the latest sports game or whatever, then they'll learn not to ask. The culture here ought to be one where we reject any temptation to create a hypocritical culture all about the externals. There ought to be vulnerability. There ought to be a willingness to bear the burdens of one another, carry one another along, help one another persevere in the faith so that we can all be found blameless before Christ at His coming. Jesus rebukes hypocrisy all throughout the Gospels. Yet, to go back to a car analogy, we're all out of alignment. And so you let go of the wheel and we veer. And where do we veer? We often veer towards self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Matthew 23.5, Jesus says of the Pharisees, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. It was all about externals, and it was all so that others would affirm them. Unless we become a Pharisee, standing in judgment of the Pharisees, we recognize we can be guilty of the same things. It's easy for us to forget the means of grace which God has given us, that those things are not ends in and of themselves, but are vehicles for worship and growth. Can we not sometimes be guilty of thinking our weekly gathering here is a service we provide to God, which is worthy of reward? instead of remembering that we're here to worship God sincerely from the heart? Can we not sometimes fall into the trap of the Pharisee by going through the motions of singing a worship song where the the words are coming out of my mouth, but nothing's coming from my heart? Can we not sometimes be like the Pharisee by feeling like good little boys and girls because we read our Bibles today, while forgetting that His Word is meant to lead us to know Him and love Him more? Can we not sometimes become like the Pharisee as we consider the ways we've served other Christians this week? Forgetting that Jesus says that we, we do good to those who do good to us, but what benefit is that to us, for even sinners do the same. It's one of the dangers of developing a tight knit community in the church, which we ought to do, but one of the dangers in that is that this becomes your whole world, so that then you're not crossing paths with unbelievers and projecting the love of Christ outward? And I say that as a church that emphasizes the one another's constantly. You know that if you've gone through our Membership Matters curriculum. Can we not sometimes become like the Pharisee by assessing our own spiritual state, by comparing ourselves to others? And that, in fact, is our next point. The next damning assumption of this self-righteous man. First of all, God accepts us on the basis of our inherent goodness. Number two, that goodness is determined by externals. And number three, goodness is measured in comparison to others. Look what he does verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like other men. This man has an elevated view of self, and therefore he has a boldness in comparing himself to others. This is the nature of all those who think that they are good. Good in comparison to others. And then we're always choosy as to who we compare ourselves to. There's always going to be those that you can compare yourselves to in order to feel better about yourself. And so we choose those people carefully. We, like the Pharisees, can choose, uh, can choose to assess our own spiritual state by comparing ourselves to the spiritual state of others. We lament the state of the world. We look out there with all of its sin and immorality but in reality, in kind of a perverted sense, we look at the culture and all of its immorality and we kind of feed off of it because in comparison to them, we're doing pretty good. As long as the world is wallowing in the muck of its own immorality, I feel pretty clean and pure. The truth of the matter, however, is that we can get away with some pretty low standards of holiness if we're continually comparing ourselves to the culture. What standard? By what standard should we judge ourselves? How can we measure whether or not we're actually growing in the faith? What, what is the standard of holiness? First and foremost, it's the character of God. The Bible says, be ye holy, for I am holy. Well, that's a high standard. We understand that God, though, for believers has granted us his Holy Spirit, and so that progressive growth into holiness does happen. It does Uh, Progress and what does it look like? Christ like character. And so, how do we judge ourselves? Not by looking at our neighbor, not by looking at the culture, but we look to the holiness of God. We recognize He's given us His Holy Spirit. And so, we question am I becoming more and more like Jesus? Next of all, we look to the holiness of God. We look to uh, how the Holy Spirit is producing Christ like character in us. But then we can also look to our past life. Has the Lord brought you along in your spiritual walk? Have you seen spiritual change? Have you seen evidence of the Holy Spirit working on the inside of you? Um, Those are decent comparisons. Look to the holiness of God and say, I fall short. Absolutely, I fall short. But he's given me his Holy Spirit, and Christ is being formed in me. Am I becoming more like Jesus, and am I becoming less and less like I was before Jesus? Well, those are good measures, but not by looking at your neighbor. The danger in that, and we come back to the idea of church culture, the danger in that is that we can just have a lowest common denominator type of religious standard in our church. And so the Christian brother next to me is quite worldly. Not really separated from the world, doesn't really have an appetite for spiritual things. And you know what? I'm a little bit better uh, because uh, I listen to Christian podcasts during the week. So uh, I think I'm doing okay. Well, it's that type of thinking that allows the spiritual culture of the church, again, to become a lowest common denominator uh, type of culture with no pursuit for spiritual excellence. The standard is God's holiness. Be ye holy, for I am holy, recognizing we all fall short of that. But God has given us his Holy Spirit. He is producing in us Christ-like characters through his means. And we are striving to become more and more like Jesus and less and less like we were. And that's the right comparison. And so, goodness is not measured in comparison to others. Now, there's two characters in this parable. The Pharisee and the tax collector. And now let's look at the tax collector. Verse 13. Tax collector, despised. You know, I don't know why the Pharisee speaks of extortioners and tax collectors separately because the tax collector basically isn't an extortioner. Uh, He's working, the Jews view him as a traitor. He's working on behalf of Rome. Uh, He could collect whatever Rome required, and then he can add on top of that whatever he wanted. And so you owe a dollar to Rome. Okay, well, I'm going to collect six, and I'm going to keep five for myself. Okay, and so the Jews hated the tax collectors. The Romans didn't have a lot of respect for the tax collectors either. Uh, They were all about money, and that was it. And uh, so here is this tax collector in the temple, and of course he's going to be despised by the Pharisee. But the tax collector, standing far off, in contrast to the Pharisee, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is sincerity. His sincerity before God is seen in what? His posture reflected genuine humility before God. He knew that he had fallen short of God's standard of holiness and was therefore unworthy to stand before him. And so he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Wouldn't even lift up his eyes Why? Because he's not comparing himself to others. He understood in the temple he is there in the presence of God. And so his standard is what? The holiness of God, understanding that he falls far, far, far short. He saw himself as a helpless sinner in the presence of a holy God. Next, what does he do? It says he beat his breast. What is that? He, know, he knew the source of his own problem. Why beating your chest? Well, that's, what, that's where your heart is. He knew that in his inner core, he had fallen short. So he pounds on his own chest, his own sinful heart. The problem was not with externals. He understood that if you were to dress like the Pharisee and put on a robe with fringes and so on, that doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't get to the heart. Well, maybe I'll tithe, maybe I'll fast. Well, those are all externals. It doesn't get to the heart. And so he pounds his own chest by saying, me, my inner being, my very person, I fall short. The ultimate source of his problem was his very nature. He was inescapably sinful. So he's recognizing that goodness is not a matter of externals. And you say, well, that's pretty advanced for this tax collector. This is a parable. (laughs) Jesus is telling this parable. Okay. And then standing before a holy God, acknowledging his sinfulness and inability to rectify his situation, he does what every sinner must do. Standing before a holy God, understanding you fall short, understanding that I fall short because it's my very nature, which is inescapable, which I cannot rectify myself. What do you do in that situation? Presence of a holy God, I'm a sinner, cannot save myself. The only thing anybody can do in the right response is what this tax collector does. He cries out for mercy. Lord, don't give me what I deserve because I deserve nothing. I don't want justice because justice will result in wrath and judgment. I need mercy. And so he cries out for mercy. Acceptance can only come by God, not through human goodness, but through God's own merciful provision. The word for mercy here, interestingly, is the same word that's translated propitiation propitiation, the satisfying of God and the turning away of God's wrath, what this tax collector is crying out for is just that, Lord, have mercy. Don't judge me for my sin. I understand who I am. I understand that I'm not worthy. I understand that I deserve your wrath. But Lord, please turn away your wrath from me. Have mercy upon me. It's the same word we see in Hebrews 2.17. Speaking of Christ, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make what? Propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ provided everything we need for what? The turning away of God's wrath and the satisfying of God's justice. And so it's fitting that the tax collector is crying out for propitiation or from, for mercy while standing in the temple. I think he understood that once a year on the Day of Atonement, The priest commanded by God would take one goat and would place upon it the sins of the people and that goat would be driven into the wilderness as if the sins of the people were taken far away and then another uh, would be offered as a sacrificial lamb bearing the wrath and the judgment against sin. And so God by his mercy provided a substitute for the sins of the people. And on the basis of that substitute, God then turns away his wrath from the people, having poured his wrath out symbolically upon that sacrificial lamb. And so the tax collector is here standing in the temple, understanding that this is the place where atonement is made, understanding this is the place where one can attain the mercy of God, and cries out, Lord, give me propitiation, show me mercy. He understands this is not a matter of works. It's not a matter of internal goodness, but he throws himself on the mercy of God. Romans 4 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And we understand post cross, the whole the, the, the temple system, the scapegoats, the sacrificial lamb, all of that we understand points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so now again, as we approach the end here, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and maybe you are determined that you are good enough, pretty good person, pretty moral person, I believe God exists, okay, I kind of have a conscience towards God. Okay, here's the question. Have you believed in Jesus Christ as the only Savior? And only Lord. Paul continues in Romans 3 and says that the only source of righteousness is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, declared righteous by His grace as a gift. Nobody brings their own righteousness into heaven. We must be declared righteous by God as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So this is God's means of salvation. God puts forward his son and says, my son will be the source of righteousness. He will be the propitiation. His own offering is going to turn away my wrath and satisfy my justice. So then all that's left for you to do is believe. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That is, all those sins committed before Christ, God waited patiently for the day when his son would be offered upon the cross. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God maintains his justice, doesn't sacrifice sacrifice it one iota, He maintains his justice while also being able to declare righteous those who have sinned. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the story ends with the Pharisee trusting in himself. And this is interesting because as Jesus tells the parable, you can imagine that the Pharisee prays, the tax collector prays, the Pharisee goes his way, the tax collector goes his way. And anybody on the outside watching this, this just would have been a routine uh, uh, kind of uh, scene Anybody watching from the outside would have just assumed that the Pharisee goes his way, religious, right with God, and the tax collector, what's he doing here? But Jesus helps us see what's happening on the inside. He says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went to his house justified, declared righteous. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted Jesus for salvation by faith, but are instead trusting in your own goodness for salvation, which of those two characters are you most like? What then should you do? Confess your sin to God. Lord, I'm not worthy. I have no goodness in and of myself. By the world standard, you may have lived a quote-unquote moral life. The fact of the matter is you and your inner core are a sinner, fallen, child of wrath, children of disobedience, the Bible says, spiritually dead. There's nothing that you can do to rectify that situation in and of yourself. All you can do is cry out for mercy. And so, Lord, forgive me for my sin. I recognize that I am a sinner. I cannot save myself, and Jesus is the only way. Express to the Lord that you're trusting his own son as Savior. You're submitting to him as Lord. And we have a promise on the basis of of the word of God, that those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. If you Confess that Jesus is Lord, Romans chapter 10 tells us, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved. If you're a Christian this morning, be warned. After having come to the faith, this is where the danger comes in. We all now are tempted at times to kind of climb up on that high horse and begin to judge others. We're living according to biblical morality. Uh, We've changed a lot. We've stopped doing a lot of things that we once did as God changes us by his Holy Spirit. And still, though, we have this flesh, and so then we can begin to judge others. Uh, Compare ourselves to fellow brothers and sisters, but also judging the culture. Arming ourselves for the culture war, forgetting that it's the world that is the mission field. It's easy to allow Christian activity and church life to become routine. It's easy to see the true heart of devotion carved out of our worship so that all we're left with is a lifeless, empty shell. And so we're to be warned. It's easy to fall into the trap of the Pharisee and to begin to look at the world and all of its sinfulness and to think too highly of ourselves as if what we have hasn't been received by God's mercy and grace. And Be warned. That it's easy to become like a Pharisee and to judge our own spiritual state and progress by comparing ourselves to one another. Again, in this, we settle down in a mediocrity, only seeking to meet or barely exceed the lowest common denominator of the religious crowd that we've surrounded ourselves with, forgetting that the standard is God's holiness and Christ-like character. So the attitude of the tax collector ought to loom large in our hearts, our whole life long. Lord, just be merciful to me. Do you repeat this at all? In your spiritual life, Lord, I'm, I'm nothing. Lord, I'm nothing. Have you, have God ever, the Holy Spirit ever just take you down a few pegs as you start thinking how good you are? It just reminds you, Lord, I'm nothing. I'm just a product of your mercy. And just keep showing me mercy. Be merciful to me, one who is wholly unworthy of you and your grace. And then what? Thank you for Jesus Christ who's made it possible. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. What a relief it is to see that the Christian faith is not one of pretense, it's not one of outward show. This is a matter of the heart. Lord, you have comprised your church of men and women, wholly unworthy, wholly unable, undeserving. You've saved us by your mercy and by your grace. And you've done so in order to create a community of men and women who just are overwhelmed by your goodness, overwhelmed by your love, overwhelmed by your mercy, because we recognize that we're wholly unworthy. Help us now not to fall prey, having been saved, maybe been saved for many years, decades, or being exposed to church, much of our lives, help us not to lose sight of our own unworthiness, and that anything that we have and any goodness that we have is a product of your Holy Spirit working in us. So protect us uh, from creating a culture of hypocrisy, a culture of superficiality. Help us be vulnerable with one another. Help us be honest. Help us to recognize that none of us are beyond the need for your means of grace. None of us are beyond uh, stumbling. None of us are beyond sin. None of us are beyond having times of spiritual malaise or spiritual depression. Uh, help us to rely upon one another, your means uh, to grow and to persevere, be honest with one another when we need help, when we need prayer, when we need encouragement, and then protect us also from the danger of becoming judgmental of unbelievers, becoming judgmental of the culture, having a us versus them mentality, recognizing that if it were not for your mercy and your grace, uh, we would be uh, part of the cultural uh, philosophy and value system and morality and so on. Lord, help us to see the world as a mission field, as Jesus would see as uh, people as sheep without a shepherd, helpless and harassed, in need of salvation. So help us to have a compassion upon others. And then lastly, Lord, we just pray this morning for any who are here who are not yet saved. I pray they'd recognize their need for Jesus Christ and salvation in his name. I pray that they would place their trust in him and that they'd make that public profession public at some point through baptism. Lord, we thank you for this. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's In his name that we pray, amen.